Chasing Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Tasting Anarchy. This is your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... The actual Mason Joseph. <laughs> That's right. Uh, For those of you who don't get it, you'll have to figure it out on your own. Jacob, don't explain it. Okay. All right. I won't explain it. I was going to, <laughs> Yeah. But now I won't. I think, I think most of the people that listen to our show also uh, listen to the it, it, nope, other nope. shows. In, yes. Okay. All right. They, they will All figure right. it out. <laughs> all right well they can, figure uh, it out, they can tell us on tasting anarchy on twitter uh childerberg on twitter tasting anarchy at gmail.com tasting anarchy.com or childerberg.com which is all of our stuff plus we have reddit and facebook so you know that's right if you figure it out tell us <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, plugs out of the way <laughs> speaking speaking of yeah speaking of uh, twitter i actually had a an interesting like somebody is going was going down to Central Texas, a liber- libertarian from a different place, and mm. they somebody through the grapevine, um, he heard that we knew Texas wine okay, and so I recommended a couple of vineyards for him to check out. Awesome, and uh, one of them was Coleman, which is is one that I like quite a yeah. bit. Coleman's and uh, so I, I'm hoping that he's going to take a look at one of those and then kind of let us know what he thought. That'd be awesome. So you know, if, cool. you know, depending, uh, maybe we can have him on. Yeah, absolutely. Like, hey, so that'd be, you know, that'd be kind of neat. Do we actually know what the hell we're talking about? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, this week we've got something that we haven't done in a while, mm-hmm. uh, which is we have the same wine. Yes. Uh, I think you tried. I think you tried yours last week. Uh, I drank the entire bottle last week and I bought a second oh, bottle. Okay. I bought all oh, of cool. it at Total Wine here. Um, okay. The bottles don't taste the same. Really interesting. Yeah, it, well, I, so, you know, the first, the first bottle, I opened it when we had everybody over and then like four people ended up not showing up. So I ended up smoking three chickens for like three adults, basically plus more than that, more adults than that. But, you know, some people didn't show, which is fine. Like they weren't able to come. Um, but our mutual friend, Lisa, I let her try some of it and she's not really a Pinot Noir person. And she was like, this is really interesting because it was it was very jammy. The first one, the yeah. second one was much more Pinot Noir. I was like, "What okay. is this?" <laughs> okay, so I think uh, what, what's interesting. I'll give my opinion of it in a minute mm-hmm. uh, after we tell everybody what it is. Yes, and I think probably what I'm drinking is more similar to your experience of the first one, which I don't care for as much as I probably would have cared for the second one. Oh man, the first one like that yeah. was just an amazing Pinot Noir to me. Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to pronounce the name of this, and then you you do your best to uh, <laughs> to correct correct it. I guess it's uh, Mascata Vides Vides La Mascata Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Pretty close. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up again. The the link. Oh, let me see because I think I uh, g chatted it to you. Yeah. I can, I can actually, I, I can, I got it. Um, okay. Well, so I see that as Moscato or Moscata. Yeah. Yeah. La Moscata Pinot Noir. Um, so I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Now, do you have the 17 or the 16? 16. Yeah. So I think I had 17 for both. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, so yeah. So I guess the 2016 was what was available at, 
my total wine, um, which I went to the one in South Arlington and it was $15 a bottle. Is that what you paid for years as well? Actually, yes, for the first time. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. So, normally, $15 a bottle. Yeah. Normally, it's more expensive. Um, now, why? Do you, let's refresh the listeners real quick. Why is it that we chose this particular Pinot Noir? So, we chose this Pinot Noir because we both are very big fans of South American wines. Um, we like the peppery flavors of them. And because I was able to find this on both of our total wines. Um, when I searched Argentinian Pinot Noir into total wine, which is not usually how, like we both used to do total wine a lot. Um, yeah. but now we really don't do total wine very much. Um, but that was, uh, the first one that came up that was there for both of us. But the big thing was Argentinian, uh, Argentinian Pinot Noir, because if you listen to, if we list release these chronologically, not last episode, but the one before that, where we deep dive Pinot Noir and probably, as we are probably going to do tonight, could have gone quite a bit longer on it. Um, yeah. We're like, we've never had a South American Pinot Noir. And we thought, like, let's see how much terroir is in the South American that we like. How much of that is just South America? Or is it just the expression of the specific grapes that they're growing? Right. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, I I don't know the episode number because I haven't released it yet as of this recording. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did we did a a kind of a deep dive on Pinot Noir. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive on Pinot Noir in Argentina, Mm. which is its its whole its own beast. There's also we could do a deep dive on Pinot Noir in Chile, which on the other side of the Andes, Mm -hmm. uh, we could do. Well, that's really the two main places in South America where they grow it. Um, yeah, but we could do French. We could do Oregon. Yeah. Like I, I see in a couple episodes that we should probably get like a French one, and or like an yeah. Italian if we can. Um, well, yeah, North Italy is supposed to have some really interesting Pinot Noir, and mm-hmm. Burgundy, of course, is the as we discussed in that previous episode. That's basically the home of of Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, and then also the Oregon is a really good place. And I think on the Pinot Noir episode we had, I had um, uh, Santa Rita, mm-hmm. uh, which was much further south than I thought. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. When we started looking at the map, I was like, man, I thought this was way up like near Monterey. Yeah. I knew it was south of San Francisco, but I thought it was like just south of San Francisco. Yeah, and I actually had one from Monterey, which is funny. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. Um, so I'll go ahead and give my my quick review on this, and then you can tell me uh, if you think that I'm describing this accurately. Now, granted, I, like I said, it's a 2016, so it is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. This is from uh, Mendoza, generically, so it's not from a particular part of Mendoza, as far as I could tell. Uh, um, if you read the back of the yeah. bottle, um, okay. I think it's from a specific, like there's a specific vineyard. Like that's right. The, okay. But it didn't say like North, South, East, or, you know, any like sub sub region, yeah. like left blank, left bank or something like well, that. From, from what I understand with, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more with uh, the Pinot Noir, the, the part of Mendoza where they mostly do Pinot Noir is uh Yuko Valley. So it's YCO. Mm-hmm. And that is the, I could be getting this mixed up and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in my notes, but it's like the furthest West up on the mountains. So it's like a cooler climate, but they're Easternly facing slopes. So it it's, gets that yeah, interesting, that direct very, sun. Very Pinot Noir 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And similar soils too to Burgundy, where it has some of that kind of limestone, but it's a it's a mix of like limestone, sand, rock, and then some mixed with clay, which gives it different flavors. But we'll get into that in a second. So this is so uh, Moscata Vineyards Mendoza. Uh, the look I'm giving this like my traditional tasting notes notes, which I haven't done in a while because I always forget about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Look. Tr- it's a like translucent brick, but a little bit darker than what I typically expect from Pinot Noir. Yeah, um, that that was really surprised on how translucent it was uh-huh. for how dark it was. Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 an interesting red color, which is you know, I that's one of the things that like I think a lot of people, um, I wouldn't say they take for granted, but like it, it, wine has an interesting text, like viscosity look. Like it's just an interesting liquid in general. So it's like, you know, I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time like looking at orange juice or milk or water or whatever, but like, but, but wine is interesting looking and most alcohol is, it just has a, it has a different liquid property, which makes it look a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But then with wine, that color range is also very interesting, especially with the red wines. Uh, and, and so this, yeah, an interesting, it's kind of like a dark brick color. Uh, but translucent. And that's very typical of Pinot Noir that it's this kind of translucent color. You don't always get that with like Cabernet Sauvignon or something like that. This it, Cab tends to be a little bit more inky, like where it's not really easy to see through it. But Pinot Noir does have sort of that delicate, oily look that you can see through. But mm-hmm. this is this do, is darker than what I normally expect, but uh, still very interesting looking. Uh, Smell-wise, I actually didn't get a lot of smell off of this. Now I do recall though, that I, when I woke up this morning, I told my wife I had a stuffy nose mm-hmm. and I think it's cause I finished cleaning out the garage yesterday and the final stage of that was using the blower to blow out any dust that was uh, in there. Can you and didn't I didn't wear your mask COVID on. mask. Yeah. I didn't wear my COVID mask. I always forget <laughs> about it until like later on. So I think possibly it's like allergies mm-hmm. from the dust. Oh, um, I'm sure. Which is probably, probably is, uh, What's that stuff that causes cancer? Uh, asbestos, asbestos, probably asbestos dust <laughs> <laughs> from the popcorn ceiling. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like I had a stuffy nose, so I w- I didn't get a huge amount mm. off of it. But the the one the one smell that I could really kind of pull out of it was uh, black cherry. Hmm. So uh, sort of this kind of jammy cherry smell. Uh, yeah, I, I can than, I can see yeah. that. Yeah, uh, then taste sour black cherry a lot of bite in this. So a lot more bite than what I would associate with Pinot Noir, which might be the initial reason I didn't care for it too much. Now that I'm about halfway through the glass, I am liking it a little bit more. Maybe that it just needed to open up, which is, is possible. Although I did pour it and set it down for a while, which was not really intentional, but I was making um, melted cheese on hamburger bun and which is like, you know, one of my favorite snacks. And, uh, <laughs> Okay, and I was in there watching it to make sure it didn't burn, uh-huh. and then and then got distracted by the dogs and stuff like that. And then I came back, and so it, it had been fire. open for a while. <laughs> What's that? I said it was on fire. Yeah, right. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Keep derailing here. <laughs> but so so it was open. So that sour black cherry, a lot of bite, but the bite is mellowed out, uh, and then it does still after every sip. I actually like this, but. For Pinot Noir, I feel like I'm getting a little bit snobby on this. I don't feel this is correct. Um, I don't know if you ever get this. When you have something that's very acidic, it feels like your pores open up and you start sweating a little. So 
I noticed that today, but, um, and I'll get into this when I kind of go over the two, two, um, experiences I had with this. Uh Um, I attributed that to something else, but I don't think you're wrong. I think that might have actually been closer to what I was actually having happen. Um, by comparison. Okay. Yeah. So I, I attribute that to acidity because I get that with like lemons and stuff like that, where it feels like I'm sweaty, but it's not sweaty really. It's just, I think it's your pores opening up. Uh, and I don't know why sour stuff does that, but I think that's accurate. (laughs) I could be totally wrong. Um, there is also though, there is something else going on to this that I'm, it's kind of like some sort of earthiness. I read online that some people are describing this as mushroom, but I read this after I had written down my notes. And so in my notes, it just says there is some sort of earthiness but it's hard to identify. And I think it's a little bit overpowered by its kind of hard acidity. Mm -hmm. So my conclusion, yeah. So Mm -hmm. my conclusion on this is uh, this is interesting, but not my favorite. I think uh, for a Pinot Noir, it's a little too bold and a little too acidic and tannic. Um, So I do, I do like the acidity. It's just for a Pinot Noir. It's odd. How much of that do you think is South American? And how much of that do you think is like South American style? Because to me, that sounds like a lot like most South American reds, like mm-hmm. kind of that bullfighting, like big with beef kind of red. Um, like I know that's not really a great description, but I, I'm pretty sure you kind of know what I mean by that. Um, and I feel that's the way most like South America to me, and it may be the price point, that we stick at because like, you know, 1499, um, like I don't feel like they do subtle very well in red. Yeah. and And I think that's probably true after doing some research though on Argentinian Pinot Noir. I think Mm -hmm. that that, that is probably the case with Mendoza for sure. Okay. There are two other regions that I'm going to talk about a little bit when we get into it. Okay. That I think are probably going to be more along the lines of what, I typically associate with Pinot Noir, which mm-hmm. would be that Willamette Valley, uh, Burgundy. Well, I, I really haven't had, I don't, I think I've only had like one or two Burgundies. Yeah. But, I, I really uh, think but you're like, thinking Willamette. Yeah. Willamette, which is more like ghost. Cool. Like it's a, it's a cool, well-balanced, well-structured wine that is not particularly bold. It's more fruit forward. It does have the acidity, but it's not an overpowering acidity. So it's kind of like, you know what Elizabeth from Wine for Normal People, she describes it as the the picture frame where everything is square. So it's got equal sides on mm-hmm. all. Whereas if you mm-hmm. have if mm-hmm. you have one side that is larger or smaller, it's it not distorts the picture. Yeah. Yeah. So um and I think that this to me feels like it is too acidic for everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. But that could just be typical of either the price point or particularly Mendoza. Uh once we get into the other regions, there's some really, really interesting things about Argentina. And this wine didn't put me off of Argentina at all. Oh, no, no, no. Um, this is this is good. But like, yeah, it's, it's I get good. what you're it's saying. Interesting. It's not. Like, if you told me this was a cab, I would be more inclined to believe it. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, at least my second bottle. Right. I, I would think possibly, I think possibly cab, but there's... It's definitely its own thing. It's really unusual. Hmm. 
and and so it doesn't put me off of it. It's not tannic enough, I don't think, for a cab, but it could be a blend, a red a red blend of some type. Like but a it's more tannic. That's what I'm thinking. Oh but, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a that's a great that's a great analogy for it. It does seem a lot like Gamay. Uh, yeah. Maybe a little less jammy than Gamay, but it does have a lot more of those characteristics to it. How much and, of this have you had? Uh, a, a, about a glass, a little bit more, more than a glass. Okay. What I would like to challenge you to do is, do you have any fatty sausage? Uh, I got salami. So I would say get another glass and some fatty salami. Okay. And I think that would, because like cheese... And like, I know you usually have like a, a different style of cheese, but cheese and bread with this, like, I think, cause, so I'll tell you the story of the two times I had this. So last week, you know, we planned to do this and you know, we got a little, you got a little derailed, which was fine. Um, yeah. but I had people over where like, I ended up smoking poor chicken. So I was outside. I had been drinking a bunch of beer, like, you know, me, like I just was like, Oh, yeah. like be re- responsible. No, I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> right. I open it. And like, I've been like eating different stuff at the house and like, like I don't really have like a clean palate and the first sip, like I don't really taste any acidity in it. It's very jammy, like very like gamay, like that jammy, but with acidity there, but like not that strong. And like I said, I had Lisa try a glass of it and she's not really a big red person, like big reds, like aggressive reds. Like it's not really her thing. Yeah. And she was like, oh, that's really good and jammy. So, like, it was very much more gamay. Today, like, so I got up at 5.30, not because I wanted to, just woke up. Um, I worked out, and then I went to my parents' house, and I changed the oil on both cars, rotated my wife's tires, um, didn't rotate my tires, and uh, regretted that later. <laughs> then mm-hmm. um, went home. And then like just have been going all day and like, you know, got a four year old basically at this point. Like, and so, you know, she's rambunctious and so I've just been doing stuff all day. And so then I opened this and that's when I had like, it was very like, and I had opened it the other night and like, I didn't get a lot of the jamminess, but I didn't get as much acidity as I did today. Like I was very like acidic, like very dry on the tongue, like much more than normal. And like, I really didn't get like any smell in it or anything like that. But like, I was going at it basically with nothing on, like we ended up having tonight, um, uh, like sweet in sweet and mild Italian sausage and potato and kale soup. Oh, that um, sounds pretty good. Yeah, it, it is really good. I think you'd like it a lot. Yeah. It sounds like right in my alley. Yeah. Yeah, it's got cream in it. It's really good chicken stock. Um, So it's good soup. And like the first couple of glasses, sips I've had of it when it was just like basically clean palate, it was very dry and like not hot, but getting there. And like um, I thought like with the soup, it was just going to like wreck me. But like it ended up like making the wine open up a bit. So I think with like some salami in there, I think you'll get a better experience for this one. Um, But yeah, right. Like, that's the thing is, but that, that's, what's so weird is that first bottle, at least to me, definitely tasted different. Now, yeah, I was way more intoxicated (laughs) drinking that one than I was this one. Now, yesterday I did go to Total Wine again and I ended up getting the, the one we're going to review next week, most likely. Um, Oh, oh, you did get that one? Yeah, I got it too. 
It was like oh, 10 bucks. Oh, then we'll have two, so, yeah, two episodes. Yeah, they're they're very inexpensive. So. Yeah, it was super awesome. So I got that one. I got this one. But then, like, I've really been into Oktoberfest and pumpkin ales. Okay. So, like, I've, for some reason, like, we've been going to the beer garden. I've been getting, like, Dunkelweiss, which is just kind of the big, tall, dark German beer. Like, it's not yeah. super alcoholic. But I've been getting a lot of those. And I was just like, oh, man, let me try some Oktoberfest. So I got Founders. Oktoberfest because I haven't been able to find breakfast out in the store in a while. It's fine. Um, so I ended up getting that and like I had uh, dogfish heads, uh, pumpkin ale. So I had one of those. I had two glasses of this wine, um, a beer. And then I had this trapel that I got from like Lidl Aldi, whichever the one is by where I work, you know, that one. Um, but they had some like trapel there. So like I had, way too much to drink yesterday. Like, and I wasn't hung over anything this morning, but like just way too much to drink. So I don't remember the first two glasses. So like, it was definitely a different experience with it having been opened. Cause you know, I don't have a, a recorker or anything like that. I just basically jam the cork in there as best I can. Um, yeah. So it definitely had aerated a bit. So this is just a, a very interesting wine. Now this vineyard does a cab franc. Same price oh, really? point is available in both our stores. Oh, we should get that. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, you know, well, at some point we'll try to get the Cab Franc because that's, this is like the second class, second bottle was what I like in Cab Franc, that Virginia Cab Franc, that kind of that aggression, but without being like a flavor, like a, a fruit bomb totally. So like mm-hmm. if you had told me this was Cab Franc, I'd been like, no, the fruit, the fruit is off, but that's why I said like, you know, with a uh, peanut and the blueberryness of it, mm-hmm. like that's why I was saying, like, if you told me this wasn't like Pinot Noir, but it was Cab Saab, I'd be like, Pinot and them talking or something. <laughs> like, no, they, you know, they here? also do a, they also do a Malbec, which is what, uh, mm-hmm. Mendoza is famous for, but yeah, yeah. I, let's, let's do that. Let's do that Cab Franc maybe yeah. in there, uh, two or three weeks. Yeah, their website is really like for a for a foreign wine company. Yeah, like their English website is pretty awesome. Um, pretty I've well actually, done. Would, yeah, in doing a lot of research for this, this is something you and I used to talk about a lot, and and we mm-hmm. haven't done it as much lately. But uh, in doing research for this, there was actually quite a few um, South American or well Argentinian websites that i thought were done really well yeah well i think part of it is these are made to um these are made for export i don't think these are really sold in country um yeah and i've noticed too that a lot of the winemakers that are there are mm -hmm. uh italian which i also thought was kind of interesting and I, i think we've seen a lot of french down there too oh really okay yeah but uh they also do a shiraz Oh, that would be kind of neat to do. Yeah, they, as well. they do a couple cabs. They have a Chardonnay, Cab Franc, Malbec. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested. Like, I'm interested in the Shiraz. I'm interested in the Cab Franc because those are more unique. Um, but yeah, I think the Cab Franc is definitely one we're going to try. Um, now, kind of in personal news, we're probably going back to the Eastern Shore. So I'm going to try to hit up a different winery than the last one I went to when I was out there even though the last one was good, I'm just going to try to go to a different one and hopefully get some more Cab Franc or something different for Virginia. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty neat. Yeah. 
Actually, we should do this. I almost opened it on Friday. I still have that dessert wine. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, I, I've been trying to think. Like, we were going to open it for, like, the housewarming. But then, like, there was – it was just Victoria and me, and it was a really hectic time, and, and she didn't want any. So I was like, well, I want to save it to, for, like, a special occasion. And my sister was here, and my cousin came over to, to visit my cousin that lives in this area. I didn't and, really um, remember you had a cousin who lived in the area. I do, yeah. It's uh, it's my cousin Mia, who is my dad's sister's niece, uh, child. So mm-hmm. um, she's quite a bit younger than me, but she's, you know, 10 years younger than me or something like that. Uh, but uh, well, 10 years younger than us, we're the same age. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Ten, yeah, 10 years younger than both of us, but just younger. And also, she lived in Florida when we lived in California, so not really any. Mm-hmm. Not really a lot of connection until yeah. now, but like I was like, well, you know, she's she's moved here. Her husband's in the military and is stationed uh, over here in Grapevine or in uh, Grand Prairie. So, uh, just wanted to, you know, yeah, see be cordial and also, you know, I I don't know her very well, but I would I am always happy to meet with family. So, um, but so I was like, oh, I'll open this, but she preferred white wine, and I happen to have one bottle left of that sweet Moscato from uh, Bullen Vineyards. And so Mm -hmm. I opened that up instead and we had that, uh, which it's sweet. So like to me, that's a dessert wine, but for my sister and her, it was kind of like just a normal wine, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) but that anyways, but yeah, so that'll, that'll be interesting. Maybe I'll, maybe we'll do when you come back from the Eastern shore with your wines and you choose one that you're going to do, maybe I'll open that dessert wine and also have something sweet with it so that we can, kind of review that so we'll both have like eastern shore wines that'll be kind of a fun theme that would be good yeah Yeah. now i definitely uh yeah that 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 one is good it just you know it's it's definitely what you think it's gonna be (laughs) to to be to be frank it's something i definitely would like um but not that you wouldn't like it but it it is it is very different (laughs) so yeah well, and if it's a sweet wine, I was thinking something to to eat something like cheesecake with it. Mm-hmm. Like I think banana it, cheesecake or strawberry yeah, cheesecake or something. I, you know, that's not my style of food, but I think you yeah. would not be badly served doing that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, definitely consider giving something like that a, a shot. Yeah. I, I do like dessert wines when it's paired with something incredibly sweet. Because it, it does it the, the sweetness of the food sort of cuts the sweetness of the wine and it makes the wine more interesting. Yeah. And um and whereas like like a Saturns or something like that, when you just drink it by itself, it's so sweet and so syrupy, it's like ugh. But then when you you know pair like a Saturns with like mango pudding or something like that, it's like holy shit, this is really good. Like yeah. the, this pairing is amazing. Like, and that's like you and I are both kind of like this is we'll, I'll just drink dry red wine all day long. And it's, and I'm, I'm very happy with that by itself. I don't have to pair it with food. Although sometimes with food, it's very good. Uh, but with dessert wine for me, I, I cannot drink a dessert wine unless I have something sweet with it. Otherwise yeah. it, to me, it's just like, it's just nauseating. Well, definitely, uh, definitely have a dessert with that. Uh, cause it is syrupy and nauseating. Like I wouldn't drink it on, I wouldn't drink it on its own because I feel it, it needs a special occasion to drink it. Um, okay. but I definitely enjoy it, but I also 
I really like, and I think you might enjoy it. Um, Lemoncello, which is, a, Oh, I do like Lemoncello. Yeah. Lemoncello. Like I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I got, um, like for a while there when I was like making people drink that, <laughs> that dessert <laughs> wine, I was also, you know, doing Lemoncello as the aperitif, um, as well. So, you know, like definitely, definitely fun times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's think about that. We'll, we'll, we'll do a little extra planning, I think for the next couple of episodes so we can share the same wine, but let's yeah, go ahead and get I'm, into, I'm okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, the, the other reason we haven't been doing a lot of research on the websites is yeah. so much of your wine came from, um, Oh my goodness. Last bottle. Last bottle. And I keep having those Groupons. So it's not like yeah. we went in specifically sought them out. A lot of times you use all what you were looking for. So you got it. So no, no more research necessarily from there. And I just got it for free. Um, right. Uh, so I think as we, cause my, my stock of those are gone. I have a good left. Um, but like, I think that's going to definitely uh, make things more interesting. Yeah. And I think too, like just, I guess, note to the, the listening audience is as I think I'm evolving as a, as a wine drinker, I think one of the reasons why I was start, starting to get a little bit tired of wine was not, not to knock glass bottle because they are a great deal is that I think that I need the, the hunt kind of, mm-hmm. and to, to be like chasing a theme to really enjoy what's going on and not just drinking for drinking sake. Yeah. And, I think- um, I think yeah, part like, of it is, I think you overstocked yourself. Yeah, like I think you so just too. had so much buildup because of the Texas heat. Um, and then it was kind of like a slog of getting through them, but also getting to try them. It, it's like, hey, I really want to try this. Whereas like when you're looking for stuff kind of to get for the show and kind of, I'm doing this like weird hand motion <laughs> you can't see. Right. Uh, but like trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, yeah, that I think that, and I think that's part of that's part of like the joy of of wine, and actually craft beer is this way a lot too. The joy of kind of like hipster drinking to to for <laughs> for mm-hmm. lack of a better way of mm-hmm. describing it is the is sort of the hunt is like going like well what do we want to talk about what do I what do I want to experience what do I want to learn about um, and and I felt that when I was actually getting this one at. Uh, total wine and I was there by myself, which that's another thing too, is I don't shop by myself very often anymore. And so mm-hmm. with, and Victoria is always cold in total wine. So she doesn't want to be in there. And I feel bad about her going out to the car and waiting for me while I just look at it for like, <laughs> he spent like 10 hours in there. <laughs> so kind of like, yeah. Yeah. And just like going, going around, go like, I, I'm not really like this time. I wasn't really in a hurry. I was just kind of walking around, looking at the different sections, seeing what was there, what was interesting. Um, I would, I think I, am going to branch out a little bit from total wine, which I do, I do like total wine, but I kind of want to, there's this wine shop over by this barbecue place I like in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And I want to check that place out cause it's more of a specialty wine shop. And I think they'll have some kind of more, not necessarily more unique wine, but maybe some of the stuff that I'm looking for that are from select vineyards where total wine has their vineyards and stuff like that. And it's a good selection, but it's mostly just easily available stuff, but there are particular things I want to try. And on that note, let's get into Pinot Noir. And one of the reasons why I would like to try some of the other stuff or go into smaller wine shops to see what they have is because 
Total Wine, at my Total Wine, they have four Pinot Noirs from Argentina. All four are from Mendoza, Mm -hmm. which is by far the largest uh, wine-growing region in Argentina and also the largest Pinot Noir region. So it makes sense that that's what they would have. But there's two other regions that are critically acclaimed and supposedly very different, very interesting. And I'd like to see if I can get something from one of those places just to try it out so that we can kind of continue our exploration. So why don't I go ahead and get into the Pinot Noir in Argentina summary that I wrote up? I would say before we do that, I think we have an ad to play. We do, actually. Uh, Let's go ahead and play that, and then we'll get into that next. So here's the ad. Hi, folks. Dan Reed here, the host of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. During the show's tenure, I've spoken to celebrated authors of baking and economics. I've chatted with bakers and chefs and libertarians alike to introduce you to people provide a mix of ideas to build your skills in the kitchen, as well as tempt your appetite toward liberty. Type culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts into your browser search bar and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I look forward to hearing from you. That is our favorite culinary libertarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culinary libertarian, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and uh, So go ahead and check out his show. I actually haven't listened to the most recent episode, so I don't know um, exactly what it is, but it has something to do with, um, New York. And I, I know that he lives in Oregon, but I don't know specifically what the topic was, but I don't think it was a cooking topic this time. I think it was a political topic. So check that out. Really great show, really interesting information about cooking and, um, and Liberty just, he's, he peppers Liberty in with adding pepper to food and that sort of stuff. So, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so anyways, Pinot Noir in Argentina, Uh, As I mentioned earlier, um, you can go back and listen to kind of our deep dive on Pinot Noir uh, two episodes ago. I think think two episodes ago chronologically. Um, Pinot Noir is a very fickle grape, and so it is uh, what they describe as a ghost. So it takes a lot of the characteristics of the terroir on, and that is what makes it both a crowd pleaser, but also one that a lot of people find difficult. Um, so in Argentina, there are three main growing regions and we discussed one of them, which was where our wine today was from is Mendoza, which is by far the largest region in Argentina. And it's, um, 1500 hectares are, uh, under vine for Pinot Noir, which is quite a bit. And, uh, the next region I am going to do my best to pronounce it is Nequen which is 233 hectares, uh, N-E-U-Q-U-E-N. Nequen? I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Then the smallest region is uh, Rio Negro, which is 133 hectares. Then, so Nequen, um, which I don't know why this was described as Nequen in like the main section, but they also just call it Shinar, in, in other parts, or as us Americans call it, Patagonia. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that's actually one that is that has been making a huge impact recently in, um, I guess, wine drinking circles and wine connoisseurs is that they have a very high quality and very consistent product coming out of there. Mm-hmm. But it's not a it's not a very big area. It it and it's not a lot of it's exported, which is one of the reasons probably why we can't find it total wine. And um, some of the characteristics of the region uh, is a more intense color. 
And we did actually notice a, a more intense color on this one, although this is from Mendoza, which is not typically characteristic, but um, Patagonia, apparently that is a characteristic that is uh, used to be considered a fault, but is now just considered characteristic of the area. Uh, it also tends to be much more acidic. And so when I was doing research and looking at my notes on this one from Mendoza, I was like, is this maybe from here? And because that was what I picked out of this was that it was incredibly acidic, but they are saying, no, it, it is more acidic. It does tend to be darker, but it does tend to have a lot more of the characteristics of Burgundy, which is more of the umami flavor, like from mushroom and more of that minerality and uh, spices and stuff like that from the oak, which I didn't really t t pick up on ours. So I am very curious to try something from Patagonia, which is kind of why I was talking about maybe going to some of these smaller wine shops and seeing if either they had that or they could order me that mm -hmm. so that I could, I could try it. And I, I'd be willing to pay a premium just to try something that is good from there. Uh, then into Mendoza, which is, is our region. And I don't know why I put my notes this way because I put this one above, even though Mendoza is the largest, I put Mendoza second. <laughs> but I think it's maybe because I was like most interested in the Patagonia one, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh but anyways, uh, so Mendoza is the next one. And uh, they do say that this is actually a, a very similar climate to Burgundy as far as weather conditions. So heat and cold is similar to Burgundy, but uh, their terroir is different. And one of the reasons why it's different is that its altitude is very high up. So the altitudes for the vineyards in Mendoza are... Um, 3,600 feet to 5,600 feet, mm -hmm. which is pretty high up in the mountains. Yeah, that is actually pretty high. Yeah. And, and that's actually here in, in Texas. Uh, that's how a lot of Texas wines mitigate the the Southern heat is by gaining altitude. So I think Marfa is at, I think it was at 4,600 or close to 5,000 uh, mm -hmm. feet. And then uh, High Plains in Texas, I think is over 3,000. I, I have to double check that, but um, that's one of the ways that, that we mitigate the heat is by increasing altitude. And one of the things that comes from increasing altitude, and they get this in Mendoza too, is that with altitude, you get stronger diurnal temperatures. Yeah. And the diurnal temperatures, as people who have listened for a while, and you know, Mason, is that you have the heat in the day and the cool at night. And that alternating heat helps different flavors to develop. Um, which is nice. And and in particular in Pinot Noir, which does kind of need that strong diurnal mm -hmm. in order to develop some of the more unique characteristics that Pinot Noir has. Um, one of the, so this is this region of Mendoza that they grow this in is, man, I think I, uh, it's called Uco, Uco Valley or Uco, uh, U-C-O. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the highest, um, part of Mendoza and it also has uh, the lowest aver average temperature in Mendoza. So it's it's a lot more suited to Pinot Noir than it is to uh, like Cabernet Sauvignon or Malbec, which is is the popular one from Mendoza. Um, so it's, this is a high altitude. It's also very dry and Pinot Noir needs that. One of the reasons that Pinot Noir needs a drier climate is because there are very tight clusters mm -hmm. and tight clusters are prone to rot. And uh, if you have the tight clusters and you have a dry climate, it, they tend to dry out. They, they don't uh, have to deal with the, um, the different rots that, that can occur. Uh, the other region is Rio Negro, which I think we mentioned 
in the previous Pinot Noir episode. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a really, this is actually the one that I put the most extensive notes on just because it to me sounded the most interesting. Mendoza sounded interesting and I kind of dismissed it at first uh, for some reason, but (laughs) then reading about Patagonia and Rio Negro and then reading more about Mendoza, I kind of was like, Oh, actually Mendoza is pretty interesting as well. (laughs) Um, but re- I don't I don't know what it was. I think probably because I had already heard of it. I was like, old hat. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> but Rio Negro. Uh, so this this region is actually really interesting because they've actually had Pinot Noir there for over a hundred years, and they it's some of the oldest vines in the country. And what's really cool about a lot of the vines that are there is they're not grafts and they're not clones of clones. They're clones of uh, unique unique versions of Pinot Noir from that area. Gotcha. So basically um, like, Hey, I really like what you're doing. Can I get some graphs? Yeah. Well, they're not even grafting them. These oh, are, excuse me. but yeah, yeah, they're, they, these are, they are, they're clones of that version of Pinot Noir, but they are on European rootstock. They're not on American rootstock, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because most places can't do that because of fluoroxera. Um, apparently a lot of these are on European rootstock and have been there for a hundred years. Now we've actually talked about this a little bit before in South America in Chile because their Carmenere is not on American rootstock. A lot of their Carmenere, I, I won't say that, it, that none of it is, but a lot of it is not. A lot of theirs is just on the native rootstock. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are newer to the show, or I don't actually, maybe that doesn't matter because we don't really discuss it a huge amount. Um, your European rootstock is very, very deep. So it digs down very deep. It pulls a lot of these minerals that are deep in the soil up into the plant and that changes the, the flavor. But in Europe now, there's almost nothing on European rootstock. They're almost all on American rootstock. And that's because of phylloxera, which came from the United States or from America um, into, actually, I guess it did come from the United States specifically, but it's a it's a pest. It's a it's a bug that uh, attacks the roots of grapes, and the American grapes have a thicker skin on them, so those those bugs don't bother it as much. I thought it was but a thicker skin on the roots. Yeah, what did I say? Uh, you just said skin on them, and and I took that to mean the skin on the the fruit, as opposed to the oh, vine. Okay. Um, yeah, well, this yeah. is yeah the bark, I guess. Um, so the the bark on the roots. Mm-hmm. Well, do roots have bark? I don't know what you call that, but. That's that's a really good question. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll ask some like a viticulturist or something about that yeah. at some point. But yeah, so it's thicker, so these bugs can't burrow into it and kill the grape. Um, and but for some reason, and, and my guess would be it's climate climate uh, climatological. Is that the right word? Um, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it isn't. But yeah, right. I so whatever it is about the climate down there, my guess is that they just don't get fluoroxera for whatever reason, and. Um, so they are able to be on the natural rootstock, which means that they're digging much deeper into the soil and pulling out a lot of minerals. Um, so Rio Negro region has something really interesting about it. It, it is a desert, um, but there is a there is the Rio Negro, which is a river that's there. But they also have a network of underground river systems there. And these underground river systems are deeper, but not so deep that like a deep root tap can't hit them. And so mm-hmm. these vines do get down into the underground river system and it, and as it's coming down from the Andes and filtering through the, the soil, 
it's also dissolving a lot of minerals and pulling those minerals down there. And so this apparently translates into some really interesting and unique flavors in their Pinot Noir. Um, this makes me really want to try this wine because the way that they're describing it is, is it is very, very unique and very uh, different. Their main growing region is called the High Valley. And um, the characteristics of the region is that the nights are about 40 degrees Fahrenheit and the days are about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So it has that really nice diurnal shift <laughs> because it is a desert. That is a huge shift. It is. It's it's a fifty degree shift, and it's and but it's because it's the desert. So you do get those desert transitions of heat, which is really interesting, and and apparently great for Pinot Noir. So it gets that nice heat in the in the daytime where it to ripen, but at night it gets a nice rest, which is when it's developing a lot of sugars and pulling those minerals into the fruit. And um, so really interesting shift. They do have some frost issues, but uh, that is. Apparently, over the the last several years, they've had a very consistent harvest with very regular weather. Now, because it is a desert, they do have to do some irrigation, but those underground river systems help a lot, and so they don't do as much as other places, and this makes it like a primary place for biodynamic and organic wines, and apparently, they're doing a lot of that in this uh, Rio Negro High Valley area, especially on the higher end wine markets. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one particular one that I wrote down, uh, which is, or no, this one was for, this one was for, uh, Patagonia, which is, uh, Chakra, I think it's called Chakra wine. Um, I might, I'm going to look and see if I can find this one. Cause this one had, was interesting. They had a video on YouTube where he was like describing stuff about it. And I thought it was really interesting. Now I think that, um, Rio Negro and the Patagonia regions are actually fairly close but uh we could look that up actually i didn't i didn't look up a map to see but there was some crossover when they were talking about it and a couple of the patagonia things mentioned rio negro as a river that was nearby but it could be a different rio negro because i think it just means black river right it does yeah yeah so i i there could be more than one i don't know um, but that's kind of the the gist of what is going on in argentina and if people noticed I didn't give typical flavors that um, show up in Argentinian wine because overall it's very unique and, and depends on which vineyard because it is Pinot Noir. So Pinot Noir is such a, it's such a, a ghost as they describe it. It really does take on the um, characteristics of the terroir there are some kind of rules of thumb, I guess, when it comes to Argentinian Pinot Noir. And those rules of thumb mostly come from Mendoza. And the the rules of thumb is that you're going to get a lot more cherry, strawberry, and vanilla and a higher acidity. That's basically the, the rule of thumb for Pinot Noir in Argentina. Besides that, and, and that makes sense because typically New World wines do tend to be much fruitier. Um. And the altitude in all of the places where they're growing Pinot Noir or the climate, the cooler climates at night and all that sort of stuff does make it more prone to high acidity. And so that it makes a lot of sense. So anything you want to add to Argentinian Pinot Noir other than now you're super excited to continue exploring Argentinian (laughs) Pinot Noir? I I am. So I was doing some uh, deep planning because uh, okay. phylloxera did come from North America. Um, okay. So Chilean wine 
basically the desert, the Pacific Ocean, the Andes kind of isolated. Australia doesn't seem to have been uh, impacted. Um, Riesling, Riesling from Mosul um, apparently has been untouched. So, you know, if you kind of want to try those, um, those areas, in, you know, kind of that area, um, if you, if you're interested in, you know, trying stuff that isn't on American rootstock, you can kind of get those. And then there's a, uh, Santorini grape and there's a, some Juan Garcia grape variety, um, that's grown in Spain. Um, so okay. Santorini being in Greece that are naturally resistant. So it's the, yeah, I, I was going to say, I was going to say Greece that I, I thought there were certain ones in Greece that didn't get it or yeah, it's just they were isolated that, enough or something. According to wiki, it's just one, but it's a uh, A S S Y R I or a or good Lord. A S S Y R T I K O Asarico, um, grape. And then the the Juan Garcia grape variety. So I was thinking, like, trying to figure out how to get some of those. Um, yeah, that would be kind of cool. Maybe we super... could, yeah, we could plan those out and try it. Yeah. So yeah, I would, but, I would I really like to try stuff that is on the, I guess, natural rootstock and see what that's like. Hmm. Um. Well, I'm also wondering if, like, in places like where Ricky is in Altamarfa, because it is in the middle of the desert and there's not any vineyards around there, if he just took a clipping off of a one of his other vines and grew it mm-hmm. if that would if that would have a problem like where would the flocks or it come from yeah so but it could be that they actually are fine on american rootstock it's just that the american rootstock doesn't have a problem with it so maybe they are there it's just that the american rootstock just it doesn't kill it like it kills the european rootstock yeah it, it doesn't it's just it's too thick um, okay. They, they've kind of, or they produce too much sap, but it's a form of aphid. Okay. So like, right. This is making me think like the ladybug warrior. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like how do you make saves. a, how do you make like an underground ladybug or something? <laughs> well, they don't, they don't necessarily live underground. So like the sexual form against the under grape leaves. Um, it's a, like the problem with it is like a lot of, a lot of bugs have like, one stage that you can interrupt and it kind of kills them off. These are just kind of like, doesn't matter what you mess with them. Okay. Um, so, and you know, huh. sucks that they came from North America in like 1850. Yeah. They're, they're fairly new. Yeah. Yeah. A life cycle. When, well, and it, 1815 to me did sound new, but I oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, it did. It caused like this huge problem, but you know where they, they realized that they could graft, um, that they could graft the European grapes onto American rootstock was in Texas, uh, up mm-hmm. in um, the well, what's now the Texoma region. They were doing grape experiments there, and one of the things they were doing was seeing if they could grow European varieties in Texas. But they are, had already realized they had an issue with Phylloxera, and so that's where they realized they could do a graft, and so they sent those over there, and that's so that really saved them. Um, they it it their their wine industry was decimated by it but that it was i can't remember who it was but somebody sent them it, it ended up getting traced like that was what's kind of interesting about it being so modern and we, we should actually do a deep dive on that because it's really interesting they they were able to trace it to this guy's garden hmm. like based on because somebody sent him some american grapes like muscadines or something like that and it was on those yeah so the according to wiki which isn't necessarily directly so did 
sorted. Um, Phylloxera was introduced to Europe when avid botanists in Victorian England collected specimens of American vines in the 1850s. Now, that is certainly possible that somebody had it sent to them, but uh, problems spread rapidly across the continent. In France alone, total wine production fell from 84.5 million hectoliters in 1875 to 200 or only 23.4. So that's nearly like 60% decline or 60 million hectoliter decline by 1889. So, you know, 14 years later, and this is apparently this like thing has like 18, like complex life cycle with up to 18 stages. So like, wow. if you, you know, we, we should, we should ridiculous. definitely do an episode of this. I think, I think it would be, yeah kind of an interesting topic because it, it is it is you know what we should have on nikki p and um ben the hippie the hippie mm-hmm. libertarian on for a environmental episode where we discuss fluoroxera and other be, other, other environmental like, things related to grapes i guess yeah well not not only grapes but kind of like from a it, you know, we're kind of tying the more libertarian aspect. It's like, uh, you know, like in Texas, like how many things where they're like signs do you see like around waterways where they're like, spray your boat. And like, from where I'm from, you're like, what the hell are they talking about? And it's all of those like, you know, razor mollusks and all that other stuff. That's like messing up those, you know, areas over there. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of it intentional, like intentional introduction and some of it not, um, you know, like Floroxera, like they didn't even know this thing existed basically. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, it wasn't an issue here really other than yeah. for, I guess, you know, technically they're, I, I wouldn't say they're invasive. I, what well, does invasive mean that they cause a problem or, mm-hmm. okay. Well then I guess then European grapes weren't invasive cause they weren't going wild, but they were having a hard time growing them here. So. And no one knew uh, why. I have and then. <laughs> I have one article that we can go through that yeah. does actually talk big time about wine declines, but it's wine declines in imports. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's relevant because we spent the last two or three episodes touching on the weird European subsidies for the the uh, wine industry that's having a really hard time in France. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the other side of that, or or, or another side of it, because um, France is a very big exporter of wine to China, and the the six month figures came out for Chinese wine imports, and it is pretty astonishing how much their wine consumption has decreased as a result. Well, they're saying it's as a result of COVID, um, which you know I believe obviously, but um, I I. I uh, I wonder if there's more to the story, but I'll go ahead and summarize it and then we can go ahead and discuss because it's, mm-hmm. it's I think it's, they're pretty astonishing numbers. So this article is from Decanter and it's called uh, China wine imports down by a third, which is you know pretty, pretty big. Uh, this article is by Sylvia Wu at Decanter. So it is from August 14th, 2020. Um, I'm surprised I hadn't come over the come across this earlier because I do read Decanter quite a bit, and this is a type of article that would catch my eye, but for some reason I didn't see it before. So um, I did see it this time. So let's go ahead and go through it. So the summary is: um, bottled wine imports to China dropped by one third, both in volume and value. So as COVID restrictions lift, there are signs of a rebound, um, but. 
one thing they're a little bit, well, producers are a little bit concerned about is that historically, um, July and August tend to be drier months for the wine industry in China. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't really go into why, but they're, that's just, those are just low import months. So June did have a little bit of an uptick, but they're kind of concerned that it's still going to stay down. So as, um, uh, one of the one of the reasons imports are down is because Chinese retailers are trying to get rid of stock bought for the Chinese New Year's, which was canceled mm -hmm. by by their government. So nationwide, they weren't allowed to have as many of these celebrations. So the wine, the alcohol consumption in general was way down, and uh, so a lot of the retail locations that were having these imported wines and other types of alcohol uh, just have a huge stock that they need to get rid of, and so they've just not been ordering more. Uh, April, uh, okay. So April and May were the worst hit months with a 50% decline in import value year over year. Uh, in June, there was a, the, uh, well that this is basically an increase. I, I touched on this a minute ago. So it, it was still down, but it was only down 28%. So it was a little bit of an uptick. Uh, and then, uh, July and August are, are traditionally low low months, and that uh, they are optimistic because October has some major Chinese holidays, and so producers are a little bit optimistic that maybe there'll be some more orders coming in, especially since they've got July and August to kind of clear some inventory, mm -hmm. and then they'll maybe start ordering some more. So going through country by country, um, who lost the most is we have Australia as a leading export of wine to China. And, and we actually discussed this on some previous episodes that Australia, although they've always been a leading export of wine to China, they've really reconfigured a lot of their wine industry to export to China because the Chinese palate is different than the European and American and Australian palates. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are producing wine in Australia specifically for China. And when you put all of your eggs into one basket, that can be pretty devastating for your industry. But it's also kind of one of those things where it's damned if you do, damned if you don't if China continued to be a leading importer of wine from Australia and you were still producing stuff that was for a different palate, you may not be able to sell as much and mm -hmm. that may hurt you overall. But so for Australia though, um, they, they actually recorded an increase in value of the wine sold a 0.07, but that's actually, um, it is an increase in value, but it's, of, of what they've been increasing over the previous year, it's actually a decrease overall from because they've been stepping up at a certain percentage consistently and now they're much lower. So it's like a, it's almost a half a percent lower than the expected increase, if that makes sense. Not, not that, not that that really makes sense either. Cause we talk about this actually when it comes to like government spending, when they're like, we're going to cut taxes, but what they're really talking about is cutting an increase of taxes. So Instead of taxes going up 1%, they go up 5% or, or half a percent. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of one of those situations where they're like, well, it did go up, but we expected it to go up 1.5%, but it only went up 0.7%. So like, that's kind of a weird thing. But the exports in volume went down 17%. Uh, French wines are down 32% in volume, 37.7% in value. U.S. exports are down 35.7% in volume and 46.4% in value, but they're saying that this is actually 
these numbers are a little bit inflated because it's also due to the tariffs. So mm-hmm. we've got some pretty major tariffs and they've retaliated with us on tariffs. And so that's kind of killing the California export market to China. And so there's just a huge decrease there. Um, then all, then the one place that actually had a substantial growth is Argentina, who we've been talking <laughs> about all episode. They yeah. had a six, 654% increase in volume <laughs> to China um, and a 20.6% value increase. And they cite in this article that this is largely due to Argentina entering the market in general, but also that they're entering the lower cost, the lower price point market in China. So they're actually considered value wine there. Uh, so aside from wine, beer imports were also down across the board by about 22.6% in volume and 17.5% in value. Spirit saw a 8% drop in volume and a 31.4% drop in value. And um, on the note of other types of alcohol, beer is actually recovered to exactly what it was year over year from the previous year. So, uh, I guess beer's back in, but the other types of alcohol are still struggling. And, um, I think that's interesting. I can't speak to, um, I can't speak to liquor, but I think part of the problem with wine is the heat. Yeah. So I think that's probably what you're seeing is a lot of the slump in July and August or June, you know, that, that is the heat. So they, they're not, be. they're trying to cut the orders because China gets very warm as well. Um, yeah. But Argentina is currently, you know, they're going into their spring. So right. it's actually not that cold. So like that kind of makes sense. But there's also um, like, so the, the current U.S. strategy seems to be like to hem China in with Australia, Japan, India and the United States is kind of like this hedge, you know, pen China in sort of strategy that the U S has been pursuing. Um, and with that being said, um, like that could also be why there's, cause like there's a, a shift away from Australia relying so heavily on China. Cause like when China mm-hmm. locked down, like basically it, Australia is going into their first recession in 29 years. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure that they probably had other problems, you know, that sort of thing, but that's where they, they were saying is like, you know, the, they're going into this cycle and that's the big issue is they had such a heavy reliance on China and then China basically shut down their own economy and Australia has jacked up their economy extremely, but like, you know, basically, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, people are saying about China is like China is the world's manufacturer, but they really manufacture to the United States. Right. Like, yeah, that's exactly. where the money is, but like who manufactures to, or who provides to China and it's all these other little countries and Australia had really bent their economy to providing to all like China. Right. So. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting. And, and something that has been a concern kind of in the wine industry for a while um, well, well, it's sort of a love-hate on it is that the Chinese market is opening up for the middle class, which means more wine consumption, but their palate is significantly different than the – and this is not the right way to put it because when, when I say the generic palate, palate I mean European palate, mm-hmm. which is 
although even Americans have a slightly different palate than the Europeans, we do tend to like things that are fruitier. The Chinese and Eastern Europeans tend to really like sweet wines. Mm-hmm. They just have a different taste. And when the, the U.S. is still the kind of the major market in the world, and when they start when they start kind of making things that are not for a more general market, then it makes it a, it makes it a specialty item that's difficult. And in wine, because it takes so long to ramp up production, that if you make that change, and we saw this with with uh, how badly California was affected by these tariffs, is that they had changed over a number of their vineyards to producing or their wine with their winemaking processes to making wine for the Chinese palate. And then they're stuck with wine that Americans won't drink if they can't sell it to China. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes it a tricky situation. So, um, I don't really know what I'm, I don't really have any particular like angle on that. I don't, I don't think it's good or bad necessarily, but I, I'm, I've, as you and I discussed before the show got started, I, I've been listening to like a lot of these books by um, uh, Kunstler. And one of the things he does talk about with like the international trade system is that it does have a huge amount of benefits, but there becomes a point when things get too complicated and you start getting diminishing returns. And then because of the interdependency of that complicated system, one failure wrecks a whole sector of the economy and that sometimes simple is better mm-hmm. that may not be the way the market goes so like you and i are, are and and james howard kunstler is not particularly a free market guy but uh i think he does point out things that were like an unrestricted market might have the foresight to not make things super complicated like, and this is actually something you and I get at a lot. And it is when you say like one of the reasons why you would prefer the current tax code to like the fair tax, for example, is because it is very complicated and you can get around stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And that, but that for a highly regulated international trade market, like we have currently, that happens as well. People will do shit tons of really complicated stuff just to get around certain things, which ends up being profitable for them in the short run. But because they've now implemented all of these very complex things into it, it makes the single points of failure more devastating or having larger ramifications because the complexity is is difficult. This is another thing that you and I talk about is that like some of these more complicated technologies, somebody who like sets it up dies and then people just pray to God that it just continues to work because nobody knows how it works. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think is often very humorous, at least in my opinion. Yeah. And this is not, so this is like kind of hard to unpack. So you get people like Elon Musk who just puts, push stuff forward, always going forward. Someone else figure out the ideas, someone else make it work. It's like Howard Hughes was one of those guys who just pushed forward. He could do it. And like, he was smart enough to figure out a lot of stuff, but eventually he got outpaced and went crazy. But like he pushed forward. And that's one of the things that a lot of people, the big influence of the Fed and other things like that with the idea of the bailout is people no longer how to know how to solve a problem. Right. 
Because in my opinion, I think the one thing that you said that was a little, needs a little adjustment is Uh people would come out and say, oh, we don't know how to solve this because they're looking to get bailed out. They know how to solve it. They could figure it out. They could, they could fix it or do something about it. But they're, the whole point is to act like they can't. So in the same thing with like, um, like these tax rules and these changes, like everyone's like, Oh, a single point of failure. And it causes all these problems. No, most of those people have already planned for some other manipulation. And that's why they're constantly trying to manipulate the government is to make sure that they don't have to, but like, look at the, you know, like with the 2008 crash, like those people got bailed out, but they had already moved on to something else. Like they were already shifting their thing. And it's the people who, it's kind of like, um, you know, the guy, like the last guy at the last person to the dance. It's like, yeah. okay, like you showed up to the party, you know, just as the cops were walking in the door. So you're, you know, and you were the money bags in your friend group. So like I convinced you to give me a thousand dollars and I convinced, you know, your, your sister to give you a thousand dollars when you guys had a thousand dollars. Now we're all right. broke as <laughs> like we're yeah, the last yeah. one. So like, I think that's one of those things where, and one of the things that I am noticing more about in, you know, you're not normally a pessimist, but you've been very pessimistic as of late. And I've been kind of more, and it's because I consume a lot of malice stuff where it's like, yeah, things are going to suck at some point. Things suck now. Like right. they're, well, oh, they're going to be worse. Yeah. It's like, maybe I don't think so, but well, I see that, you know, and, and malice actually talks about this too, is that, I wouldn't say that I'm being a pessimist is, is I don't want to be a Pollyanna. Um, I want to know what the issues are. So, the, the, you know, one of the things, and we'll probably wrap up with this is, yeah. you know, Childerberg town, I talk about a lot. And one of the reasons why this is so important of a topic to me is that is for choosing a site of Childerberg town. Mm-hmm. So like I'm reconsidering a lot of the, the, my old, criteria for a place for Childeberg town because as much as I really liked visiting New Mexico and being up there in the mountains and stuff like that, there is um, no waterway that leads to the ocean there, uh, especially no deep waterway. Mm-hmm. And so there's not really any shipping that is going to be done out of there. You could probably have a nice isolated community that probably did okay for itself and had plenty of food and that kind of thing. But it is, uh, it's a region where the population is heavily reliant on food coming in via diesel truck. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I have never, until I started consuming this guy's content, nothing I, nothing I ever really considered being a problem. I just figured yeah, if they run out of diesel, they'll have something else. And one of the things that he kind of puts forward is don't count on it is it's not like, it's not like the world has always progressed. There has been dark ages and, and he's not saying be pessimistic. He's saying be prepared. It's, Mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a little bit different where he says, look, I am going to tell you all this doom and gloom stuff that's out there. He believes in the American spirit. I believe in the American spirit. You know, we're going to get through it. We're going to figure it out, but you want to be in a position where you are, you know, not in New York city. And you are not in downtown Dallas, and you're not in some suburb that is a that is without diesel trucks, a food desert. You mm-hmm. want to be in a place where 
you are within bicycling distance to a market where you can get food for you and your family if you need it, and that you have the infrastructure uh, available to you to continue to make money when power becomes a premium. Like mm-hmm. right now, we take advantage that power is cheap, but according to his calculations on this, power is cheap because of cheap money from the Fed. And it's been cheap for you know damn near 100 years, and at some point, the piper's got to get paid, mm-hmm. which means really expensive power for a period of time. In, unless, unless there's, you know, unless something, you know, amazing happens. I mean, you, you can't, you know, our economy for the last hundred years or whatever has been a series of breakthroughs. You know, one of the most recent ones being the internet where something comes along and it saves us from that great depression. So like if, in, if the internet didn't come along in the nineties and make this huge new economy, things would be very different after the 1987 crash. Quite possibly. Or 80, was it 87 or 88? So like there was this period when there was a place to put a whole bunch of new money. And then that collapsed in the late nineties and they put a whole bunch of money into the housing. And then that collapsed in the, you know, 2008 era. And, you know, now we've seen a new collapse, but there's a great scapegoat. It's COVID, but we also don't really have anything new that is the next new thing yet. I mean, maybe we will, maybe, maybe they'll figure out those solid, solid state batteries and they will be incredible. And, you know, we'll, and like we were talking about before the show, maybe they will be able to build a bunch of nuclear reactors and they'll be great. We'll have all the power we need. And we don't actually have to change our lifestyles, but there's a lot of things that are built into our current lifestyles that are, that entropy is kind of being set off. Like Mm -hmm. why are our very old houses appreciating in value? They're, they're a depreciating asset. They should be depreciating in value, but for some reason they appreciate. And that is because of the way that the, the federal reserve manipulates the economy. And, and, you know, I guess this, this will be the last thing because we we've, we've got to go out is we, I think we see this in the wine industry as well, where uh, there's this huge amount of money that got pumped into Silicon Valley in California. A lot of those people went, I want some sort of vanity thing. They end up purchasing wineries. The wineries actually were losing more money than the people in Silicon Valley were making. And mm-hmm. so they decided we need to run these like businesses and they switched to export to China because that was the next major market. But they poured so much money into appealing to the Chinese palate that when that got cut off through artificial means, although you know the, the original means were also artificial, but through an additional artificial means, that market got cut off and those businesses failed. So it's this, it's this very strange, complicated system of money manipulation that uh, seems to be coming to a head, but you know what? Maybe we've got another 50 years. Who knows? Um, yeah. I, it's just something I want to be more conscious of, I think. That's fair. So we are uh, Tasting Anarchy. You can follow us on Twitter at tastinganarchy.com. You can follow Childerberg, which is our annual event in Texas. We're on the third one coming up in 2021. Come hell or high water. We don't care about COVID. Um, so you can follow that at uh, Childerberg on Twitter. You can go to childerberg.com. You can go to tastinganarchy.com. You can send us an email at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Yeah, we're... Uh, cool and we're happening yeah all right Uh, i guess uh stay free everybody stay free